Condition upgrade hopeful. We're all seeing a good reduction, so we're starting to feel better about it. South Florida COVID cases are down. Primary election excitement is up. For the first time, your next vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. The ticket is set. I'm ready to get to work. The race for Florida is on. Can U.S. mail handle vote by mail? Democrats are holding this up. 48 hours to election day and millions of ballots in Florida have already been cast statewide. We'll see it posted outside there in the parking lot. Voters making choices and making their voices heard. It's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good morning on this last day of early voting. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg, and we are bringing back the roundtable, trying it out virtual style to weigh in on the big week of election news, though we begin with what they're now calling a slow but solid trending down in South Florida COVID cases. And one of the first and best signs of that trend are falling numbers of hospital admissions in South Florida. They're on the way down, happening across the Jackson Health System. South Florida's largest public hospital system. Joining us now is the CEO, Carlos Magoya. Carlos, good morning. Good morning. Great to see you. Good morning, guys. How are you this morning? We're doing well. So tell us what is happening with admissions and discharges from the Jackson Health System. Well, admissions are dramatically down. We are less than half of what we were at peak. We were running at one point 60, 70 uh, patients a day that we were admitting. We're down in the mid to low 20s at this point, uh, and the discharges are uh, exceeding those numbers. So that's why if you look at the peak of where we were back in the middle of July, we were um, we we're actually 48% down from that number, almost half exactly. Wow. The ICU beds are not as uh, reducing as fast. They never do. It's, it's a laggard situation. Obviously, the sicker people take a while longer to go through the process, but we're down a third in our ICU beds also for our COVID patients. So the trends are there and they're very solid. Also, uh, people coming into the into the uh, ED, to the emergency rooms, uh, have reduced as well. We went from having 75 positive COVID patients a day during the peak down to averaging somewhere around 15. Carlos, so if you can see people in Glenna, the numbers are well, well down. Yeah, and when we spoke earlier this week, you had mentioned you're in regular contact with other counterparts, other CEOs in hospitals across the county. So this, you know, the, the public hospital we're focusing right here, but this is a trend countywide. What do you attribute that to? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a trend South Florida-wide. Uh, we, the, the cause we're on, Glenna, you're exactly right, it's Dave Brown and Palm Beach. Uh, we believe the aggressiveness that was taken uh, in early July of doing the curfew, of reducing the visits uh, in uh, restaurants to outside, and some of the, and, and, and not only that, but also the social distancing and masking that people, even though it's not 100 percent, it's a lot better than it used to be. It really has actually had a very, very positive uh, uh, reduction. I mean, it, yesterday's numbers in hospitalized beds for the county, uh, we were in the 1300 range. Uh, from the max of 2,300. Uh, so all of those numbers are really, really positive. And now we have two straight days of uh, slightly over 10% positivity rates on a uh, test of 14,000 tests a day. Yeah, uh, Carlos, let me ask you about uh, admitting children or who your doctors are seeing kids because uh, there's kind of an alarming statistic that uh, uh, we came across, uh, 219 cases 
in Miami-Dade in the last two weeks of children being diagnosed with this and a positivity rate of 18.8% uh, in uh, Miami-Dade, 119 kids in Broward, positivity rate of 15%. Are you seeing those kids? And just from your opinion as a hospital administrator, what about kids going back to school when there is still the rate of positivity and number of children getting sick? Well, you, you bring a great point. And then obviously, when you say uh, children getting sick, it's a relative term. Uh, our census is that right now is running around 10 children, and it's never gone higher than 12 or 13 children that we have had uh, hospitalized at any one time that are positive, positive of COVID. Uh, it's not so much that they get so sick that they get hospitalized, but they do they have a positive, uh, they do turn positive. And the question still out there is at what age and, and when do they infect other people? So it's not necessarily just the children getting sick, it's how they can then infect other people. Right. And when they're at school, uh, they're not infecting them, not only infecting themselves, they're infecting the adults in the schools, and then they come home and infect uh, their parents or grandparents. Uh, and that's a challenge, that, that is a challenge. You know, we, we're talking about uh, what is a positive trend, positive meaning good, finally, a positive trend for South Florida. But, but we really need to talk about the number of fatal cases and the death rate. Those numbers have really been up and alarming lately. And I'd like for you to put in, in context those numbers because that's the, that's the number we're going to see go down last. Yeah, it, 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 you're, you're unfortunately right. Uh, when I mentioned to you that the intensive care beds do not come down as fast, obviously people in intensive care have a higher mortality rate than those in a, in a med surge, uh, and typically even higher of a mortality rate for those that get ventilated. Uh, and unfortunately, those are the cases. We've seen in, in Miami-Dade uh, a slight improvement of vented patients uh, from COVID than we did in New York, but it's still a very high mortality rate. So from that standpoint, you're, you're right, Glenn, we're probably at least a week or two weeks from seeing the peak of those numbers. So uh, the numbers will continue to be high in mortality and the death rate will climb because obviously as you have less people being admitted and, uh, and more people dying, that's uh, unfortunately not, not a positive thing. Uh, and, and many of them have a lot of comorbidities. It's the same exact challenge, but we will see a lot, a lot of those numbers uh, continue to climb here for the next week or two. Right. Uh, in Florida yesterday, 204 deaths were reported from COVID-19. Uh, Carlos, let me ask you kind of a housekeeping issue. Uh, four, five, six weeks ago, when your hospital was really under the gun, uh, you asked the governor for help. He sent in uh, dozens of nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, other people to help out. Do you still have those people or have you sent them home? So we have some of them still in. We actually, I just talked to the emergency management director, uh, Moskowitz for the state on Friday. We will not, no longer need any but the physical therapist uh, by August 21st, which will be this coming week. Uh, they've been a great, great help uh, to us. Uh, and, and not only in the, in the climbing numbers, but also as a relief uh, of our own employees that have been at this for well in excess of five months. So we will see some respiratory therapists beyond August 21st, but the nurses, intensive care, and a lot of the other ones uh, will be going home and, uh, from our standpoint. And uh, the correct is slightly, Michael, it's been hundreds, not just dozens. So they've been a great, great help to us. 
So real quickly, Carlos, um, sort of speak to the financial viability now, which all hospitals have really taken a hit with this pandemic. Uh, some have started up elective surgeries again. That is something that is very important to the revenue of the hospital. Uh, Jackson has not, right? Would you expect to do that soon? We're, we're looking to start some of the outpatient surgeries this coming week. Uh, as we've had now a lot of the uh, uh, nurses that work at typically in operating rooms being able to go back to operating rooms. So we will start doing outpatients and some of the uh, lower ICU uh, use uh, cases uh, this week. And we uh, that's this, the beginning of gearing up. We hope to be able to gear up in the next two to three weeks. And it's important for everybody to know, not just at Jackson, but every hospital, we have isolated uh, COVID patients from non-COVID patients. So anyone that goes in for any kind of electives, and a lot of people have deferred their electives for way too long at this point in time, uh, they should feel very, very safe in coming in and getting their operating. Uh, there's a procedure done at any time. Carlos Magoya, CEO at Jackson Health System. Carlos, it's always good to speak with you. Thank you for the very, very good work that you and your staff have done over the last several months. Thank you. Appreciate Anytime. it. And the countdown to November started in earnest this week, along with a lot of concerns about elections during a pandemic. Coming up, we're going to talk to South Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz about Kamala Harris, concerns about mail-in ballots, and a lot of other things. Stay tuned. Well, it was a big week for the Democrats. Joe Biden picked Senator, Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. It gave that ticket a much-needed jolt of electricity. Democrats will make that nomination official this week at their convention, which begins tomorrow, an unprecedented all-virtual gathering. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz chaired the Democratic convention four years ago, and she'll attend this one online and joins us right there via Skype from Weston. Good morning, Congresswoman. Good morning, Congresswoman. Both. So good to see you. Thank you, same. So we'll talk about um, Kamala Harris and the convention, but we have some breaking news today. Um, and I'm I'm going to wing it. You are on the oversight committee in the House, yes? Great. Yes. So we have this letter to the new Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. Uh, there is an urgent hearing now called before your committee Monday the 24th to examine, quote, your sweeping operational and organizational changes at the Postal Service, which could degrade delivery standards, et cetera, and impede everybody's right to vote. So let's start there um, with the post office concerns that are blossoming this week. No, absolutely. Um, I'm the only Florida Democrat that serves on the House Oversight Committee, and we have responsibility for uh, for the U.S. Postal Service and its policies. Um, what the president has done is appointed one of his big donor henchmen as Postmaster General, and uh, and given him the, the assignment to essentially take a uh, you know a, a a crowbar to the Postal Service and. Very obviously, with the comments that the president has made over the last several weeks, with the direct intention of making it much harder for people to cast their vote by mail, their votes by mail, and ensure that their mail, their their ballot arrives on time to be counted. So can In I fact, can I just let me just ask you because the post office prior to Postmaster General DeJoy has been having problems really since 2008 and um, a series of, of legal mandates made it even more difficult. So the financial issues were there already. Um, and yet they're able to deliver millions of Christmas packages. And, and so why is this, it seems so such a, a political statement to really 
make this about hampering the vote. Are, is very, the evidence there for that, really? Absolutely. There's a very serious difference between the fiscal the challenges that the Postal Service has had, which date back actually to 2006, when the George W. Bush administration required $75 billion of pre-funding their pension plan. And so it hamstrung the Postal Service fiscally, yet they didn't have any problem with getting the mail to delivered to mailboxes on time, whether it was Thanksgiving, Christmas, or uh, vote, vote, votes by mail. Now, what this new postmaster general appointed by Donald Trump intentionally to essentially sabotage the, uh, the mail system, uh, what he's done is he is removing mailboxes that are on the streets, obstacle to getting people's mail delivered you know, it, it conveniently. He's dismantling sorting machines, dismant restricting overtime, changing the policy of ensuring that letter carriers can go back repeatedly until all the mail that was that has come into their facilities that day is delivered that day. And and as a result, I'll tell you, uh, uh, Glenn, I've, Glenn, I've had you know, business owners say to me who rely on the USPS to you know, for their invoices to be delivered. Thousands, I, I was contacted by one business owner who has thousands and thousands of invoices that he relies on the Postal Service to deliver and that come in. His, his mail has slowed to a trickle. And veterans, you know I chair the, the committee that funds the VA's budget. Veterans have now faced really serious challenges getting their medication delivered that is delivered by the Postal Service. So it's deeply concerning beyond the fact that the president has very obviously intentionally been trying to make it harder for vote-by-mail ballots to be, to be arriving on time. In fact, and I'll stop right here, just yesterday or on Friday, the Postal Service sent notice to 46 states in this country that they could not guarantee that for the first time that that ballots sent by mail based on the policies of all the states would be able to arrive at their destination on time to be counted that's outrageous and unprecedented and a direct result of this postmaster general aka donald trump's intentional sabotage of the postal service yeah. he's trying to rig the outcome of this election by making it harder for people to cast their ballot in a pandemic environment yeah. Congresswoman, if we can, let's move on to Kamala Harris. Uh, the Washington Post, ABC News, released a poll this morning, which is interesting. Let's put it up on the screen. The uh, approval rating among Americans for this ticket is really overwhelming. 54% of Americans, not just Democrats, say they think this was a good choice. Only 29% disapprove. You know, it seems to me that she really gave Joe Biden and the ticket a jolt of electricity. What do you think? Absolutely. The reason that Joe Biden is going to be elected our next president of the United States, Michael, is because the American people have confidence in him to, and confidence in his judgment. And the first major decision that he's making is his choice to run with him for vice president. Kamala Harris is the total package. She not only has been elected three times statewide in our, in our country's largest state, she ran one of the largest attorney general legal shops in the entire world when she was attorney general of California. She sits on the Senate Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. She has taken on the gun lobby. She's taken on the, the uh, Kavanaugh during the, and questioned him very effectively during his Supreme Court nomination uh, fight. And this is just a one-two punch that is going to ensure a stark contrast between the disaster that Donald Trump 
and Mike Pence have been, and the, and the confidence and capability that Biden and Harris will present to the American people. Yeah. Uh, that's why people... We have already gotten uh, a quick look at how the Trump administration and the Trump campaign is painting their criticism of Kamala Harris. They've already called her a radical liberal. They're calling her a coastal elite. How are you going to be getting around those criticisms? Oh, my God. Just the same tired old playbook. Uh, look, you know, Joe Biden was uh, Barack Obama's vice president, and the two of them together, with Joe Biden at the helm of helping us pull ourselves out of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression during the Great Recession, Joe, Joe Biden was in charge of making sure that the full implementation of the stimulus bill that helped us trigger our recovery and had the longest sustained recovery uh, until Donald Trump, again, took a monkey wrench to, uh, to our economy, uh, plunged us into record deficits by passing tax breaks for the wealthiest, most fortunate Americans, has intentionally been trying to actually get our access to health care program, Obamacare, thrown out as unconstitutional. I mean, the, 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 the undermining of the quality of life of the American people has been single-handedly led by Donald Trump and Mike Pence, and that is the contrast that voters will have, to say nothing of the fact that during a pandemic crisis like we've had, Donald Trump has been a disaster. He refuses to use the full authority of the federal government to make sure that we can take care of a national testing program, which he refuses to implement, contact tracing, isolation programs. And now the virus is running rampant, particularly in our state, where nearly out of control, where we've not had rising unemployment. And our kids are about to mostly start school online because Donald Trump refuses to do his job and do it effectively and take care of people. Congresswoman, the... uh, ordinarily, uh, you would have been in Milwaukee last month with several thousand, well, 50,000 or so other people, conventioneers, delegates of the media for the Democratic National Convention. Instead, it's going to begin tomorrow online virtually. And, um, you know, maybe these conventions are passe, but the one thing they do is they provide a platform for the president, vice president, and party stars to come on and state principles, make their pitch, make their sales pitch uh, for the vote. Uh, how's that going to happen this time? Well, it's going to happen nearly all virtually, and we have remarkable techno technological specialists, you know, individuals who have led the putting together, the, the, the refurbishing and the, re the reimagining of this convention, so that it is going to be incredibly exciting to watch, not only on broadcast television and cable, but you know, live streamed, where you're going to really see incredible outreach across the 50 United States. Uh, it, it is, uh, I think it's going to give us a lot of opportunity to reach people who you know, may not have tuned in to the just hour or two of programming each night and uh, be a much more inclusive, you know, really uh, um, effective way of presenting the contrast between the, choice, the choices of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Donald Trump and, and Mike Pence back to back in each week. I think I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunity, although it is heartbreaking and didn't have to be this way, by the way. We had plenty of time, had Donald Trump not been the disaster that he is in trying to make sure that we could flatten the curve and, and ensure that people could responsibly circulate slowly. We could have had two in-person conventions, and the blame for that lies at his feet, because he refuses to lead and actually 
make sure that we can take care of people and, uh, and do his job. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, on the upside, we can be there in our pajamas. So <laughs> there, there's or always a silver pants. lining. Appreciate Everyone. your time this morning. Thanks very much. Last day of early voting today. Yes. The polls are open until uh, till 5 o'clock. We understand. Turn in your ballot as well, because that you can drop it off at any bin, at any early vote site in Broward and Miami-Dade County. Uh, don't put it in the mail at this point. Make sure you drop it in that bin at early vote or vote on Election Day. Thanks so much. Good advice. Good to see you. All right, next up, a Republican point of view on Kamala Harris, state of the presidential race from A. Trump, Eric Trump. Welcome back. The surrogates are out in full force on the campaign trail, and that brought the president's son, Eric Trump, to Florida this week. He joined some Florida GOP bigwigs this week for a campaign-style bus tour of Florida. When it was over, I got a chance to speak with Eric Trump about the state of the campaign and, of course, about Kamala Harris. Let me ask you about Kamala Harris, which is the topic of the day. Uh, your campaign seems to be sending some mixed messages. Yesterday, Katrina Pearson, uh, Senator Blackburn from Tennessee, one said that she was too soft on crime, the other said too hard on crime. Where do you think she stands? Is she too hard or too soft? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's mixed messages. I think it was like uh, Christmas in, uh, in, in August getting uh, Kamala. I really believe that. I mean, here's a person that called law enforcement KKK um, you know, officers. She compared ICE with uh, KKK, you'll probably remember that. Uh, here's a person who wants to take away 180 million private health care plans. I mean, think about that number, Michael, 180 million. If you have private health care, it's gone. Government's going to be running your health care. People in this country aren't, aren't into that at all. She wants um, every illegal immigrant in this country to have, um, you know, government paid for um, health care on the backs of everybody else. She wants to increase taxes massively. And then you look at where she's from, right? She's from San Francisco, where you have people defecating in the streets. You have children, you know, walking with their parents well, over hold, 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 uh, hold hypodermic let me, needles. Yeah, let me let, let me just say, I am sure that Senator Harris, you know, is not in favor of homelessness or defecating in the uh, streets. Hey, I, I don't know, but she was part she was part of the leadership of that city for a very long time. And you look at the crime, and you look at the drugs, and you look at the homelessness, and you yeah. look at all the other problems they have, the the, the taxes. You know, if you want this country to look like that, you know, um, you know, you, you can you can have it. Um, yeah. You can have it. But, but, but Eric, and, then, and then last but not least, Michael, let me just say one other thing. I mean, last sure. but not least, she got under two percent of the vote in the primary. So so what's changed in the last five months that somehow makes her some magical candidate that has, you know, wild enthusiasm? And I, I just don't yeah. I just don't think she does. So, um, well, you know, we, we, we were actually very, very happy with the pick. And I think um, she carries a lot of baggage with her and she has a lot of explaining on a lot of things to do. You know, she was had a reputation as a tough, uh, sometimes progressive, but a tough district attorney in San Francisco and then a tough attorney general and a good prosecutor uh, in Sacramento and California. Are you saying that that record simply doesn't apply here? No, I'm saying you have a problem that, you know, uh, three months ago she called Joe Biden a racist. Um, so now she's perfectly willing to work with a quote-unquote racist. Those were her own terms, right? I mean, she talked about him and, you know, um, not wanting busing and, and, and plenty of other things, right? Yeah. Then she but, comes out but, and she says, you know what? I believe hold, hold, Joe hold, Biden's yeah. sex accusers. I, I believe 
those people who came out and 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 levied charges against Joe Biden of, of of you know sexual assault and other things. I believe those women. She came out and said that three months ago. Now magically, because she was asked to be on the ticket, Michael, yeah. she no longer believes in those things. All, all I'm saying is Kamala Harris any day will say anything that furthers her career, and um, and you're seeing it play out right now. And her policies are yeah. are, are radical. They're radical. Yeah. They're not going to go for them in Florida. They're, they're socialist, especially in a place like Florida, frankly, and especially places like Miami, where, you know, frankly, there are many people, um, you know, from, from South America and other places of the Caribbean who ran away from the very policies, yeah. you know, that she's proposing, like socialized yeah. medicine. All right. Well, let me just back up and simply say, in that famous debate, in the Democratic debate, she prefaced her remarks to uh, Vice President Biden by saying, Joe, I know you're not a racist and then criticized him on school busing. But she did not call him a racist and hasn't called she him a racist ever. Come on, Michael, you can stand up for all you want. I'm she not. called his policy. I'm she, simply she pointing out the facts. Michael, she called his policies racist, all right? She called his policies racist and, you know, and she did come out and very, you know, clearly say that she believed the women that were levying pretty tough charges against Joe Biden, right? I mean, she'll say whatever it takes and uh, she'll say whatever it takes to win. And either way, you know, if you look across Florida and you look across Michigan, Ohio and Pennsylvania and all these various places, people didn't love her. I mean, they just didn't love her. That's why they didn't vote for her. She had less than 2%. So I just don't know why, yeah. you know, people think she's going to come out and be this, uh, you know, person that brings massive enthusiasm when she wasn't able to do it in, uh, in the first place. Eric, let's talk about Florida, which is why, you know, we are glad you're joining us. Uh, your father won Florida by 113,000 votes in 2016. But right now, over the last couple of months, Florida has had 550,000 cases of COVID-19. 8,800 Floridians have died. Employment in the state went from roughly 3% to more than 10%. And right now, hundreds of thousands of people have stopped getting these $600 uh, unemployment benefit checks. And a lot of people in this state are angry and they are disappointed with your father. What do you say to them? Listen, I think my father's done a great job handling the pandemic. We didn't create the pandemic. Uh, China created the pandemic. The very same people who said that my father was, quote unquote, xenophobic, like Joe Biden and, you know, many others, um, for closing the borders to China. And now we're all of a sudden say, you know, quote unquote, he didn't do enough. You know, as a country, we should actually be really proud. I was reading a great article this morning. and. You know, the U.S., you know, retracted about 30 percent, right, at, at, at the lowest point. Now you see the stock market. The stock market is about to hit all-time highs again. You know, the NASDAQ is on fire. The Dow is absolutely on fire. Uh, 9.3 million jobs have come back in the last 90 days to this country. 9.3 million jobs in 90 days, Michael. I mean, massive, massive numbers. As of today, Joe Biden is ahead in Florida by 5.4 percent. And uh, what does this tell you about where your father stands in Florida? Michael, any, anybody who's actually willing to be kind of disciplined and, and go back and read the backup to polls, like I just, I encourage you to do it. Most reporters are just, you know, they either don't or they're too lazy or they're dishonest to do it, to tell you the truth. But I read every single one. And when you look at sample sets in 2016, and then you look at the numbers today, and you have pollsters that are literally oversampling, oversampling Democrats by 10% in these polls, they're garbage polls. I. I will guarantee you, we can put a little wager on it right now, I'll guarantee you we're going to win Florida because Florida's not into these policies. I mean, Biden wants to increase taxes by $4 trillion. 82% of people's taxes 
um, would shoot up in this country. 82% of people would have large you know, tax increases. I mean, they're not into that. And, and you see what they're doing with freedom of speech. And you're seeing what they're doing with you know, freedom of, of, of religion. And Florida loves their Second Amendment. You, you know what they want to do with the Second Amendment. And Florida likes private health care. And you see what they want to do with, you know, government-run health care. And I guarantee you, the, the, you know, Florida's not into the Green New Deal, which, you know, uh, Harris champions. $90 trillion would bankrupt our country on, on day one. I mean, Florida wants jobs. Florida wants the greatest economy. Florida's a state that's doing remarkably well, has done remarkably well. I mean, you, you guys are really the envy of most of the states in the United States. And, and I can tell you, um, Florida's not voting for a guy who you know, thought that Arizona was a city. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just, I, I don't believe it to be true. I don't believe the polls. They did the same thing to us in 2016. Uh, they were wrong then, Michael, and, and I'm telling you, they're they, going to be wrong again. They, they, they were wrong indeed, I remember. Uh, finally, I need to ask you about mail-in voting. Your father, obviously, for months has railed against uh, mail-in voting and said he prefers absentee voting. But, you know, in Florida, where it's very popular, there's no difference between mail-in voting and absentee voting. It's all yep. the same. So what is your message on your bus tour in Florida about mail-in voting. Yeah, you're 100% right. Um, you, you know, in terms of Florida, you're 100% right. They are the exact same thing. And in fact, you know, my father's a citizen, you know, he's a resident of, of, uh, of Florida and he's gonna be voting in Florida and he's gonna be absentee voting in Florida. And you're very lucky. You've got a great governor and a great lieutenant governor and you have a system uh, that's honest, right? I mean, if somebody, if somebody votes absentee, you can track your ballot all the way through right. in, in, in Florida. If they mail-in vote, you can track, track your ballot. There's a signature verification. There's a whole lot of things. And so you should be very, very lucky. Uh, Michael, you live in a great state that takes it really seriously and really you know, values the integrity of, of, of the polls. Not every state, unfortunately, is like that. Look what they're trying to do in Nevada, where they're just going to dump ballots on the street and see what comes back. And they don't care when it comes back. It doesn't need to be postmarked. It can be weeks after November 3rd. It can be weeks after the election. And so there's a lot of states where there's a lot of kind of crookedness going on, a lot of fraud going on. And uh, the Democrats are pushing that very, very hard. But you live in a great state that doesn't happen in Florida. So, so mail in your vote uh, in Florida and feel very confident um, that it's going to get there and it's going to be uh, processed honestly and, uh, and very effectively. Eric Trump, a true believer. Up next, Tuesday's Election Day. And for that occasion, we are bringing back the roundtable, socially distanced, of course. Stay tuned. In a matter of days, by Tuesday, in fact, we're going to see the face of South Florida political leadership change. Some veterans are going to be term limited and out of office, and others will fall to new challenges. Several races in Miami-Dade and Broward have taken some interesting twists and turns, and for that, we convene our first This Week in South Florida roundtable since COVID made us take the conversation virtual. And it is great to have back with us two veteran political reporters covering the races, the Sun Sentinel's Anthony Mann and the Miami Herald's David Smith. Miley, both with mustaches today. <laughs> Tony, what's David, with that? <laughs> good morning. Great to see you. How are you? Good. Good to be on. Well, thank you. All right. We want to get to the myriad of really interesting local races, which you are both covering. First, let me sort of get you on record. Seems to me that Kamala Harris uh, gives Joe Biden a much better chance in Florida. I think Karen Bass would have really been disastrous for Biden in Florida. 
Tony, what do you think about uh, Kamala Harris and helping Biden in Florida? I think you're right, and I couldn't agree with you more about Bass, so much so I wonder, I wondered to myself if the Biden people put that out as a little bit of disinformation, <laughs> thinking it would never, knowing it would never happen. Uh, I think Harris is, uh, is going to help energize the Biden campaign in Florida. That said, vice presidential candidates generally don't make a lot of difference. But maybe, just maybe, Harris will by energizing some of our diverse population. David, weigh in on that before we take it local. Yeah, we know the Florida congressional delegation was uh, campaigning for Val Demings, a, an Orlando congresswoman who was considered uh, as a potential VP pick for Biden. But I think Florida Democrats in general were on the anybody but bass bandwagon. Uh, I think it's possible just by considering Karen Bass, as long as they did, that it could be used against the Biden ticket in Miami with Cuban-American voters. So we'll see that. I would definitely expect to see Karen Bass in some negative mailers to come. But uh, Kamala Harris, uh, whose father uh, is Jamaican, I think uh, will uh, help with some of the Caribbean voters uh, in South Florida, which has a very large and very active, uh, especially in Broward County, uh, Jamaican uh, uh, community. Yeah, uh, David, let me stay, stay with you now. And let's first uh, take a look at the Miami-Dade mayor's race. It's really, I think at this point, you might agree, come down to the three leading candidates, Daniela Levine Cava, uh, Alex Pinellas, uh, Steve Bovo, Xavier Suarez has run out of money, ran a pretty good campaign, but I don't know what he, how he figures in. Where do you think this race stands right now? It's going to be a runoff. Who do you think is going to be in the runoff? I, I'm not going to make predictions. It seems like it's really close, and turnout is up. It is way up. Uh, it looks like early voting turnout is going to surpass the entire 2018 August primary turnout in Miami-Dade County. And, you know, that's because low-propensity voters, independents are voting and Democrats are voting in huge numbers by mail, uh, but we're probably heading for a Republican heavy election day turnout and how heavy that is, how big the election day turnout is, could depend whether we see a Bobo, Daniela Levine, Cava general election or Pinellas versus one of the other two. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to bet on who's going to be in, in the in November, but it's going to be one of those three or two of those three. You know, what's interesting is that of all the internal polls you see, depending on which candidate it comes from, puts that candidate in the lead so that you're right. It's, it's really hard to to take a look at that and make any sort of prediction. Tony Mann, the big Broward race, at least the most visible Broward race, is that for Broward Sheriff. Uh, and, and a big field there, but of course the top two getting all the attention is the incumbent Gregory Tony and Scott Israel, the suspended sheriff who, uh, who wants back in. And then there is Al Pollock, a veteran, retired uh, BSO colonel, who really has been done, doing pretty well in the polls as a quote-unquote third candidate by people, I'm guessing, who want something less than drama. Uh, last week on this program, Scott Israel and Gregory Tony spent much of their time attacking each other. What do you make of that race? Well, they provided a lot of drama on last week's program. They did. Um, I think you're right that Pollock is the choice for a lot of people who uh, don't want either Israel or Tony, but it almost certainly is going to be one of those two. And it has been a nasty, uh, really one of the nastiest races we've had in Broward in a long time. I mean, they. They hate each other, and their supporters really, really hate each other. And I think what we, the thing that 
we'll have to see is how much the dislike of former Sheriff Israel from the northwest part of the county in the Parkland Coral Springs area where the people were most deeply and personally affected by the Stoneman Douglas massacre, how, how far out that emanates from that area. Uh, I really think that when you get farther away from that, a lot of Democrats tend to be Israel fans. So it's going to be interesting to see who is voting from where. Uh, Tony Mann, let me also ask you about a race that has really become fascinating in Broward, usually low profile, and that is for a clerk of the courts. Uh, Brenda Foreman holds that job. Her former husband, Howard, uh, held it for 16 years, did a good job. Uh, and now she is opposed by two former uh, judges, uh, Backman and Spicer, and uh, this has really turned into a Donnybrook. Well, th there's a, a lot of fascinating history to that race. Uh, Brenda Foreman uh, married Howard Foreman, then won the job uh, four years ago, largely on the strength of Howard's name. They were divorced. Uh, she claimed he, well, she claimed he was mentally incompetent. Uh, then they were divorced. He was going to run actually this time, then he dropped out. So you now have Brenda Foreman and you have two opponents in Bachman and Spicer who are very similar. And if there's an anti-Foreman vote, they may very well split that anti-Foreman vote. So that's a, that's a very tough one to handicap. That's also one, by the way, that is open to all voters because no Republicans qualified. So that is going to be decided on Tuesday, as actually all of Broward's big races are going to, in effect, be decided on Tuesday because there hasn't been a Republican elected countywide here in 12 years. So the, the winners on Tuesday for sheriff and the other races that aren't open to everyone, they're almost certainly going to win the November election. The right. Broward clerk of court race is the drama of the race. <laughs> Who would have ever thought? Stay tuned. We will be right back with more Roundtable coming up. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a virtual roundtable with two veteran uh, political reporters in South Florida, Tony Mann of the Sun Sentinel, David Smiley from the Miami Herald. Uh, David, let me ask you about this uh, Miami-Dade state attorney's race, one of the most interesting on the ballot. Kathy Rundle has been state attorney in Miami-Dade for 27 years. She's been challenged by Melba Pearson, who worked in that office for 15 years. Uh, I think Melba Pearson has run a, a pretty strong race, but she hasn't had enough money. I don't think she's been as visible as she needs to be to really mount a strong challenge, but thematically and in person in debates, including one here on this program, uh, she was strong. Yeah, I, I think the res the outcome of that race was pretty much decided a long time ago uh, with two uh, developments. One, when there was no write-in candidate, when it was uh, left to only two Democrats, the incumbent Kathy Fernandez-Rundle and Melba Pearson, that opened up the primary to Republicans and Democrat, uh, Republicans and independent voters, which really made it tougher for Melba Pearson to win that race. And then Melba Pearson really needed to get the resources, and she was trying to get money uh, from George George Soros's uh, organization uh, through a political committee that he supports. And and Kathy Rundle, I think, really sort of blocked that from happening, and she hasn't been able to get the attention that say Joe Kimmich in Broward County for state attorney has gotten 
who has Bernie Sanders promoting him and Donald Sussman helping him financially. And Melba Pearson really hasn't had the support that she needed in order to compete with uh, with Kathy Rundle. So I, I think you're this is likely going to be a Kathy Rundle win. And, and it's just about, you know, to what extent can Melba Pearson make this a respectable race? The state attorney's race in Broward has been largely under the radar and, and also in Broward, Tony Mann, the um, public defender, I mean, the, the face of criminal justice in Broward may change this week. It is absolutely going to change in a big way. Uh, uh, Broward can top uh, Dade County. Mike Satz, the state attorney who is not running for re-election, was first elected in 1976. So there is going to be a huge change. Mm -hmm. And the public defender has been in office for four terms. Uh, Joe Kimmick did and the race, you're right, has been running under the radar, but it is very important and it's very contentious. There are a lot of establishment candidates. There are a couple progressive uh, candidates and uh, it really could change the way criminal justice uh, works here and a highly competitive race for a public defender also. Is there a, a front runner that you see? I think that's hard to say at this point because there are a lot of candidates in that uh, in the state attorney's race. There, are, I think it's eight, uh, it's six or eight. And um, Kimmick has a lot of money, and he's suddenly been doing a lot of advertising. But there have been people who have uh, been uh, who have come in for some of the other candidates with some money also. So it's it's really tough. They've been doing a lot of mail and a little bit of television. Yeah, Joe Kimmick, in fact, did get. I read in the Sun Sentinel seven hundred fifty thousand dollars from George Soros. I mean, that is a huge amount of money in a state attorney's race. And endorsements from uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, John Legend. So I mean, he's pulling into progressive uh, support. David, the uh, so much of the attention is on the Miami-Dade mayor's race, but fully half of that commission is going to be changing faces as well. Uh, and, and that can be a real sea change for Miami-Dade County government as those are district races. And so no one speaks with one voice on that commission at all. What do you see there? I think a number of those races are going to go to a runoff in November. So it's hard to know how many of those faces will will know will change into whom um, on Tuesday. Uh, but definitely there's some fascinating races there. You have Sabrina Fulton, uh, who is a Black Lives Matter activist and the mother of Trayvon Martin, running a really fascinating campaign against the mayor of Miami Gardens, Oliver Gilbert, where Gilbert is really well known to voters, but, but Fulton has, has sort of tapped into this national uh, uh, fundraising network where she has tons of small dollar donations coming in from all around the country. You have Miami Commissioner Keon Hardiman, running to succeed Audrey Edmondson, who is angry because she says he's uh, misleading people and into believing that she's endorsed him when she's endorsed Tissa McGee. You have Marlon Hill and Keone McGee, the outgoing minority state uh, house leader for Democrats in District 9 in, in South Dade. So it's going to be really fascinating to see who emerges uh, whether it be victorious or in the runoffs going into November. We are right. drinking from the fire hose. <laughs> David and Tony, thank you for joining us. Uh, worked out just fine. Hope to have you back uh, during the rest of the election season. And we'll be right back.
As always, we thank you for being here with us today. Remember, we are online 24-7 at local10.com. And remember, you can vote early until 4 o'clock today in Miami-Dade, until 5 o'clock in Broward. It's easy and convenient. Remember, stay informed, get involved. We'll see you next Sunday.